Hello, everyone. In today's podcast, I interviewed Dr. Aubrey DeGray. Dr. DeGray is founder of the SENS Research Foundation, which aims to prevent and reverse aging by finding technologies that can repair the various types of damage that fuel the aging process. In this episode, we discuss what those types of damage are, how aging results in a decrease in the capacity to repair these types of damage, what role epigenetics plays in the aging process, how people age at different rates, how chronic inflammation drives aging, some of the very interesting research that's been coming out showing that factors found in young blood can repair damage when infused into older organisms, the role of nutrition in aging, the advent of new highly precise gene therapy technologies like CRISPR and other exciting new emerging techniques like that of induced pluripotent stem cells. While I think Aubrey and I do come from slightly different schools of thought on some of the finer details, I respect his role as an agent of change in how people view the inevitability of aging. Finally, this episode of the Found My Fitness podcast is sponsored by people like you. So if you find great value in any of my podcasts, videos, articles, or newsletters, please consider signing up to contribute $5 a month, which is right around the cost of a latte these days. I have a genuinely amazing array of ideas bouncing around in my head that I'm anxious to get out and recorded, blasted out to you guys, including in-depth videos on topics like how vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acids play a major role in depression and other brain disorders, how gut inflammation is caused and what role it plays in aging and age-related diseases like heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, and more, how bacteria can affect mood and behavior, what some of the short-term and long-term effects of cigarettes are, how diet and lifestyle can affect traumatic brain injury, and as you can imagine, the list can go on and on. But in order to get all of that done, it helps to be able to pay for production help, keep the lights on, etc. You can find out more about how you can help me reach my next funding milestone and scale up Found My Fitness in general via my website, foundmyfitness.com, Or skip the nonsense and head right over to the support page at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash foundmyfitness. And now on to the podcast with Dr. Aubrey DeGray. Dr. Rhonda Patrick here. In this adventure of the Found My Fitness podcast, I'm in Mountain View, California at the SENS Research Foundation. And I have sitting here with me, Dr. Aubrey Gray in the house. Aubrey is a biomedical gerontologist, and he is founder of the SENS Research Foundation. And as far as I know, the SENS Research Foundation has taken on quite a ambitious goal, and that goal is to help prevent and cure aging. And I think that Aubrey sometimes refers to aging as a disease, and so I'd like to talk a little bit about that. But thank you for being here, Aubrey, and can Thanks you please me. tell us a little bit about the SENS Research Foundation? Certainly. The Sense Research Foundation is a biomedical research charity. So we're a 501c3, which means taxpayers can get tax benefits if they give us money. Um, And we do research into the diseases and disabilities of old age. And I'm a little bit cautious in using words like cure and disease in relation to aging because we have to remember always that aging is, you know, it's a side effect of being alive. It's like, it's, it's the consequence of the accumulation in the body of various molecular and cellular changes that are inevitable consequences of what the body does to keep us alive from one day to the next. Those changes are things that I call damage. And that damage 
is harmless for a long time because the body is set up to tolerate a certain amount of it. But of course only a certain amount, which means that eventually this damage exceeds our tolerance and we start to decline, both mentally and physically, and that's what the diseases and disabilities of old aging are. So when I talk about cures and about disease, I'm always a little bit careful. I think that the oversimplification that most people make with regard to the difference between diseases on the one hand and aging on the other hand is extraordinarily damaging oversimplification because it makes people unjustifiably over-optimistic about the possibility of curing age-related phenomena that they do think of as diseases, let's say Alzheimer's or cancer, breast cancer, or um, osteoporosis or whatever. But it makes them also over-pessimistic about medical advances to prevent and preempt the aspects of age-related ill health that they don't think of as diseases, like loss of muscle or decline in function of the immune system or whatever. The best way to think about this is that all of these things are part and parcel of the same phenomenon. They are interdependent but nevertheless individual aspects of the accumulation of molecular and cellular damage in the body. And the only way that we're going to bring them under control is by developing a panel of interventions that we can use to periodically repair those various types of damage and thereby leave the overall abundance of damage in the body below that threshold such that it's harmless. Right. So um, let's dig a little bit more into these types of damage because I talk quite frequently about damage um, myself. And so, you know, typically when I think of, of aging, I also think of, you know, the degeneration, the accumulation of damage and degeneration of tissues, of cells uh, as a consequence of the accumulation of this damage. And at the same time, the inability of our capacity to repair damage, to prevent the damage, also declining. So it's sort of like this balance, imbalance that begins to have, we have more damage accumulating and less, less capable of repairing that damage, as you mentioned. Okay, so I think I actually would like to stop you there for a moment, because a very important thing that an enormous number of even gerontologists tend to overlook is that this change in the balance between damage and repair has to be caused by something, right? you do indeed get, in old age, a more rapid creation of damage and a less rapid um, removal of damage, repair of damage, and thus you get an accelerated accumulation of the overall amount of damage. But why? The answer is because of the damage that was accumulating early in life, throughout life, even starting before we're born, that we could never repair at all. That is the clock of aging. It's the accumulation of damage that we simply don't have any genetic capability to repair even when we're young. When that accumulates, it does two things. It accelerates the accumulation, the creation of other damage, and it also impedes everything about the body, including the damage repair mechanisms that we have. So we get less good at repairing the damage that we used to be good at repairing. Yes, that actually makes perfect sense. The the accumulation of this damage is that we do not repair. We, can't, we simply cannot repair um, during our youth will eventually either damage the DNA mm -hmm. inside of our cells, and that'll change the function of certain genes, maybe possibly repair genes or genes that help us deal with this damage. They may um, you know, change the, the function of the cell itself, so the cell might become more stiff, mm -hmm. and that changes the way the cell is functioning, mm -hmm. or they may change the way proteins are 
you know, the function of proteins, because now proteins become aggregated and all sorts of changes happen. But um, in addition to that, it also may lead to epigenetic changes, which also can change the expression and function of genes. And so I, I think that putting it that way does make sense. Well, actually, you bring up another important point, especially with your mention of epigenetics. Because epigenetics is terribly fashionable within gerontology right now. Can you explain what epigenetics is? Epigenetics basically is the study of the changes that happen in cells, whether as a result of aging or as a result of anything else, that, uh, that cause differences in which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off. So typically these will range from things at the DNA level itself, methylation of cytosines, for example, up through modifications of histones, these proteins that DNA is wrapped around, up through higher level changes to the packing of chromosomes and to chromatin. You know, an awful lot of different things change the behavior with which a cell actually decides which proteins to express and which ones not to. But Let me just interrupt real quick. And for those of you that don't know what express or turn on or off, it just essentially is mean. What he's referring to is that when a gene is turned on or if it's expressed, it's active, it's doing the mm -hmm. function it's supposed to do. If the gene is turned off or not expressed, that just means that the gene is there, but it's not doing its function. It's almost as if it's not there. But here's the thing. When you see a change late in life, you always have to ask yourself, is this change happening as part of aging? Or is it happening as an adaptation to part of aging? Is it happening, in other words, to minimize the pathogenic consequences of some other change? And epigenetic changes in aging are pretty much entirely that latter thing. They're adaptations that are good for us to make the best of a bad job, namely the non-genetic things that are happening elsewhere. We know this simply because they are coordinated. When we look at tissue in bulk, when we look at lots of cells all at the same time, and we ask what's happening in terms of the gene expression changes, what we're seeing is a coordinated response. It's got to be coordinated because otherwise it wouldn't be happening at all this, uh, in, the, in the bulk of cells on average. So it's bound to be an adaptation. It's genetically programmed. It's happening because the cells know what their environment is, whether intracellular or extracellular, and they're responding to that environment in the same way that they might respond to an infection or to inflammation or whatever. The only way you can actually ask questions about epigenetics that are meaningful with regard to actual aging rather than adaptations to aging is by looking at individual cells. If you look at individual cells, single cell analysis, then you can quantify the noise, the amount of variation that's happening without any kind of genetic direction. And we're actually doing that. We have had a project for a few years now in the um, Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York looking at precisely this. We're looking specifically at methylation rather than the other aspects of epigenetics. And we're asking, does the amount of genetic, epigenetic noise in um, various tissues increase with age? Working in mice. And um, the hypothesis that we are pursuing is one that I put forward some time ago now, which is essentially that um, no, it won't, or at least not to a detectable degree. And the reason it won't is because the quality of DNA maintenance and repair, whether genetic or epigenetic, is driven in an evolutionary sense by the need not to die of cancer before you've reproduced. Cancer is by far, in my view, the biggest problem of DNA repair and maintenance because it can kill you with just one cell going seriously wrong in the wrong way. Whereas anything that doesn't have to do with the cell cycle, 
has to affect an awful lot of, a high proportion of the cells in a given tissue before it starts to be pathogenic. And that means a lot of cells. Yeah, so um, this, is, this is all very interesting. Have you, are you familiar with the work that's come <coughs> out of UCLA from uh, Steve Horvath, I think? So he's shown that from multiple tissues from humans, blood cells and also different you know, biopsies from different samples, that there's a pattern of methylation that appears to be specific to age. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so precise that, you know, researchers can look at this methylation, methylation pattern from, for example, lymphocytes taken from a person, and they can identify the person's age plus or minus four years with 96% yeah. accuracy. Yeah. Okay, so let me talk about that, actually, because, yes, I know Steve's worked pretty well, and I've discussed it with him. And actually, a lot of people have oversimplified what he's been doing and what he's seeing from this. So you're right, there's this extraordinary correlation, R squared of 96% that he's got. He's found this particular set of CPG islands, of, of um, um, things that change during age in terms of their methylation, that change so uniformly that you get this amazing R squared. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, first of all, you've got to remember that actually if you look in the um, adult part of life, let's say 23 to 70 or 80, then the R squared is much lower. It's, it's like 70 or something like that. Second thing you've got to remember is that that's a good thing because it means you've got some variation to actually work with. If you actually really had something totally linear, right, then first of all, it wouldn't tell you who's aging more quickly and who's, who's, not, who's aging more slowly. But secondly, it would tell you that your signature is the list of the least important things in aging, the things that are just trundling on in a trajectory that was set during development because evolution hasn't had the faintest motivation to stop them trundling on. Well, what I found interesting from the research was more the g the clusters of genes that this was involved around. They were DNA repair. Kinda, kinda, but that's genes. always dangerous. I mean, you know, I was actually involved in the very early days of the gene ontology. And I always had doubts about whether it would be um, misused, and I feel that it is being misused in, um, in, in some ways here. I think that one, well, you know, one, it, it's very hard to factor out the mul multiple hypothesis problem when you're using that kind of analysis of, of go terms. Um, essentially, you've got to ask yourself, you know, how many different cat you know, types of gene, whether it's in terms of function or process or whatever, and how many, um, yeah, what proportion of those genes are affected. It's terribly, terribly easy to run with the first thing you see when you half close your eyes when you look at that kind of data. And I think a lot of people have been doing that. But I'll do what I'm interested in with regard to Horvath's work and related work. What I'm interested in is when they have looked not at the enormously good R-squared, but at the variations from the R-squared. That's why I said that it's good that the R-squared is not so high if you look at adults. Um, thing there is that then you can actually ask questions like, does the um, subset of the population that are changing the, that, that signature of that, that group of methylation sites um, more rapidly than average, do they actually exhibit age-related pathology at a younger age? Things like, or loss of function in some other way that you can measure even at a relatively young age. Right. And very recently, just a few weeks ago, there was an extremely interesting paper that came out of a group in New Zealand where they had done exactly this question. They had basically looked at 
Uh, I can't remember how many people they looked at, but they did a longitudinal study over, if I remember rightly, 12 years. And there were early adults here. We're talking, I think the ages were something like 26 through 38. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, and, and they looked you know, for this kind of variation. If we can combine that kind of analysis with the kind of methylation analysis that Horvath has developed, then I think we'll be able to ask some very intriguing questions about the predictability of age-related ill health. But now I want to finish my answer by talking about what this means for our work. And this is actually really important because a lot of people overlook this. It's terribly, terribly fascinating that some people age more quickly than others and some species age more quickly than others. And, we, and the whole of gerontology for the more than a century now has been essentially founded on the idea that if we understand that variation really, really well, we might be able to translate that variation into some kind of therapeutic regimen so, you know, to turn fast ages into slow ages. And that, you know, I wouldn't object, that would be great. But we've got to remember a couple of things about that approach. Number one, it doesn't work so well if you only apply it late in life, because all it does is slow down the accumulation of damage rather than repairing damage, which is what we're all about. So that's bad enough. We'd like to help people who have the misfortune to be in middle age already, or maybe older. The other thing is, no one's actually had any success in this. Why not? Because metabolism is really complicated. Messing around with this vast network of undocumented spaghetti code that, 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 we're, that keeps us going from one day to the next. You know, the idea of stopping it from doing the thing we don't want it to do, the creation of damage, without also stopping it from doing things that we need it to do, you know, it's crazy. It's never going to happen. So I really don't think that even if we learn plenty by these methods, that it's going to have all that much impact on the development of actual therapies. What about some of the more recent methods, for example, the, the CRISPR, mm -hmm. you know, where this technology where now mm -hmm. we're, I'm going to totally oversimplify this for people, okay. but the, the ability to specifically target a gene and clip it out and replace it with another gene mm -hmm. or a version of the gene that's more active mm -hmm. or less active, mm -hmm. depending on what it is you want. I, I think that um, these, this new technology, for CRISPR, for example, dramatically uh, changes a lot of things because, I mean, even if we look at, for example, centenarians, semi-centenarians, which live to be about 105, or, or semi-supercentenarians live yeah. to be 105, and then the supercentenarians, which are about 110 plus. Um, a recent study came out from, I think it was Tokyo mm -hmm. and New, Newcastle, I think. I don't know if you're familiar with the study, but essentially what the study did, and it was the largest uh, cohort of the semi-supercentenarians and the supercentenarians. Um, and what they found was that they looked at a variety of different biomarkers. So they looked at inflammatory biomarkers, they looked at lipid profiles, glucose, they looked at uh, immunosenescence, so when your immune cells um, no longer are uh, living and dividing, they basically sit around and they're not dead, but they're doing more damage because they're producing more inflammatory things that are damaging other cells, so it's like spreading more nasty stuff around. Um, they looked at immunos immunosenescence, and then they also looked at um, uh, telomere length. Mm -hmm. And then they also looked at like diseases, um, and then they looked at you know organ, like liver function, kidney function. And so anyways, they're correlating all these factors. And what they found was that inflammation mm -hmm. was the only thing that drove aging in all the groups. Mm -hmm. So inflammation um, the higher the inflammation, the higher, you know, the risk of death of non-accidents, you know, so, you know, age-related diseases, cardiovascular mm -hmm. disease, cancer. Um, and this was true for all the groups. 
But what was really also interesting was that the, the centenarians, there was a positive correlation between, um, between inflammation and aminosenescence, which was essentially lost in the super centenarian group. And I don't know why that is, but the immunosenescence, uh, so essentially the inflammation went up and then the, the supercentenarians, you know, as the inflammation went up, they, they died. Um, there was a positive correlation, but the immunosenescence seemed to stay around the same for, for whatever reason. So in my mind, I think, you know, well, we know that these supercentenarians, that's possibly around a 25 to 30% increase in human lifespan. So human lifespan in the United States is average around 79 years old. If we could live to be 115 and, and live to be healthy, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so we know that it can be done with these supercentenarians, and we know that there, you know, there's all, a lot of genetic factors that are po- playing a role in this. I mean, obviously, you know, these people have lower inflammation compared to non-centenarians. They also showed that. Um, and so an inflammation is uh, upstream of a lot of damage. It's upstream of the damage that's damaging DNA, mm-hmm. proteins in the cells, lipids, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So if we can use CRISPR technology to go in and replace you know, say, give it more anti-inflammatory, you know, capabilities. Um, and this has been shown also in mice. I don't know if you've seen this study, but uh, NF-kappa B, which is a gene that produces a uh, protein that regulates a lot of other genes that are pro-inflammation, so they cause inflammation, but it also has an anti-inflammatory component to it. And when you take away that anti-inflammatory component and put it in mice, mm-hmm. What, what happens is every time there's an immune response, every time inflammation happens, which leads to chronic damage, as you talk about, um, there's a low level of inflammation and it drives aging prematurely right. in mice. All right, so, big question there. Yes. Let me have a fairly big answer. Um, but let me start with a very simple thing. Perfectly clear that inflammation is a double-edged sword, that we need it, the reason we have it anything that's genetically coded that hasn't just you know, mutated into oblivion over evolutionary time is because it's good for us. It, because it's an essential component of how we survive infections. However, there are certain aspects of age-related damage accumulation which, because they are only age-related, are not very interesting to evolution. And therefore, evolution has not taken the trouble to um, improve the precision of the inflammatory response so as to discriminate between things that the inflammatory response can actually help with, namely the elimination of infections, and things that the inflammatory response actually exacerbates, namely the accumulation of damage that is not an infection, like oxidized cholesterol or whatever. So that means that, yes, it's likely that, it's not a surprise to us, that when you look at a very, very elite population, the population that lived to 105, 110, then uh, they will overwhelmingly have a weak inflammatory response because that is the only way that they will have been able not to succumb at the age of 80 or 90 to atherosclerosis or Alzheimer's, which are definitely um, driven partly by the inflammatory response. However, what also needs to be taken into account is that plenty of people aged 80 and 90 and 100 die of infections. So yes, these people got genetically lucky because they didn't get an excessive immune resp- inflammatory response to those age-related problems, but they also got environmentally lucky in that they didn't die of infections. Or maybe they just had a really strong uh, um, adaptive immune system that, that, that compensated for the weak inflammatory response, and so on. So, um, you know, these are all trade-offs here, and what it, it adds up to is that we cannot conclude 
that it would necessarily be a good idea to take people in their, let's say, 60s or 70s and damp down their inflammatory response. What about bump up their anti-inflammatory response? It amounts to the same thing. If we're talking about the strength of the inflammatory response, as opposed to the strength of other aspects of the immune system, like T cells and B cells, then we are engaging in a, in a change of a trade-off. We are giving people less, we are, we are reducing people's risk of rate of, well, likely rate of progression of atherosclerosis and Alzheimer's and such like, but we were also increasing their risk of dying of pneumonia. Simple as that. And the best way to deal with this is to find a best of both worlds solution. To let people have the strong inflammatory response that they need in order to be protected well against infections, but to fix the problem of mis of, of, of maladaptive activation of the immune and what we're trying to do is exactly that, not by changing the inflammatory response itself, but rather by changing the targets. Ultimately, what's happening in atherosclerosis is that the inflammatory response is being activated by the accumulation of indigestible waste products, specifically oxidized cholesterol in macrophages in the artery wall, which turn into foam cells and generally make cells around them angry. If, we could, if that didn't happen, if we could get rid of that oxidized cholesterol, then it wouldn't matter at all how strong your inflammatory response was. You would not get atherosclerosis. Same for Alzheimer's. Ultimately, Alzheimer's has an inflammatory response because of the stuff it's reacting to. It's amyloid and tau and so on. If we can get rid of those materials, stop them from accumulating to a pro-inflammatory, to an inflammation-triggering level, then we won't get an infl inflammatory response, even in people with a strong inflammatory genetic profile. Has the, Sense, have you, has the Sense Foundation considered using um, some, some technologies that are, that are sort of already present in the body? For example, you mentioned Alzheimer's disease, and recently this, this uh, lymphatic system has been discovered where now we, when we sleep, we know that cerebral spinal fluid squirts up into our brain mm -hmm. and literally washes out the amyloid plaques and other buildup of you know, these extracellular aggregates that are you know, in, mm -hmm. in our brain. Um, have, has the Sense Foundation thought of any way to use that system somehow? We're looking at it. We're very interested in all ways of getting rid of molecular garbage, whether the garbage is intracellular or extracellular, and whether the getting rid of is destroying it on site or flushing it into a place where it gets destroyed in other ways. You know, we're into all of this thing. We keep our, we keep our eyes very open and our minds very open with regard to what's going to work. That's really, uh, that's good to know. Um, what about the the new, um, I find this very interesting, the parabiosis where we can, you know, take, we, I mean scientists, mm -hmm. can take blood from a young animal and transplant it in an old animal and mm -hmm. essentially reverse some biomarkers of aging mm -hmm. in multiple organs. Yeah, it's very exciting. We're actually funding a postdoc at Berkeley doing, working in this area, in one of the top labs in this area. Of course, parabiosis itself is not a therapeutic regimen. We're not going to, I mean, I presume that you would not be too keen to. Right. Uh, but it's definitely a great way to make discoveries. Yeah. Um, and it, of course, leads to alternative versions like plasma exchange and uh, phoresis ways of altering, of taking things out of the old blood or putting things into the old blood so as to achieve the same effect that parabiosis would. Of course, in order to do that, you need to know what to take out or put in. And a lot of the problems that parabiosis research faces at the moment is that that's really laborious and tricky to find out in any kind of systematic way. The 
few hits that people have had so far in terms of um, factors that seem to actually have some some, some kind of causal role, like GDF11 and right. uh, and, and and so they, these things, um, you know, were found more or less serendipitously and. Everyone knows that there's likely to be a number of others out there, perhaps very likely to be ones that are more central to the to the to the effect, but which have not been found just because they're a little more counterintuitive. So, so um, I, I envision, you know, if, if these factors can be identified, GDF11, growth differentiating factor 11, uh, was thought to be possibly playing a role in in causing you know muscle stem cells to divide and proliferate mm -hmm. and possibly in the brain as well, but. Others have not been able to confirm that, but yeah, watch this space. That's yeah, that, that's going to run and run. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, all I know is that I'm excited about the research in general, and whatever the factors are, I I envision possibly making recombinant proteins. I mean, people are you know using EPO or erythropoietin. I mean, you know, human growth yeah. factors. So some of the same sort of deal. Big, the big thing that needs to be taken into account here is that the factors that change in their abundance in the blood during age, whether up or down. And that may have an effect in terms of, if you like, um, transmitting, a, transmitting pathogenic damage from one place in the body to another. Um, those things are, first of all, they're not necessarily just proteins. We also have to worry about cells, the fact that you have you know, changes in the relative um, abundance of different types of T cells, for example. And there's also small molecules, glutathione, things like that, you know, things that may simply not be amenable to um, rejuvenation by measures like plasma exchange but only by something like parabiosis, then we would have to look at a different model. But I want to also emphasize something I just alluded to a moment ago, which is that we are talking here not about mechanisms whereby damage is created. We are talking about mechanisms whereby damage is transmitted from one part of the body to another. After all, that's what the circulation is. It just takes stuff from one place to another. It doesn't create damage. The damage comes from somewhere. So we always need to be looking out for the possibility that we can find the cells that are the source of the changes in the blood and change those cells back to a rejuvenated state and by that means rejuvenate the blood. Well, I think that, you know, the source of damage in, in, in the sense of the, of the circulation, the blood cells, you know, the immune cells in the, in the blood are, are just that. You know, when you activate macrophages, they, they dump out hydrogen peroxide and all sorts of reactive uh, nitrogen species. Yeah, that's not really what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm talking about, for example, um, well, let's say the thymus, for example. The thymus itself shrinks, as we were saying earlier, mm -hmm. and that is largely responsible for the fact that in an older person there are fewer naive T cells and more memory T cells. Um, you know, if we can fix the thymus, then we fix that problem. And, uh, and, and, and yeah, you, I can make many other examples. Yeah, I, that, that really makes sense. Um, something else, you know, talking about this damage, and, you know, you and I both um, agree that, I mean, I, I think the damage, the accumulation of damage intracellular, so inside the cell, outside of cells, um, on cell membranes, <coughs> proteins, DNA, on and on, I mean, I think that is a driver of aging and essentially causes aging. I would say it is aging. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I focus more on the an easier solution, which is the nutritional aspects of preventing or of, of allowing your body to, um, you know, metabolize and produce energy the best it can. And even though you're still going to age, like even if you're at the optimal amount, I mean, even if you have the optimum amount of, you know, micronutrients, you have these minerals and vitamins that are essential to run your metabolism, they're essential to run enzymes that repair damage, you know, so on. Um, the fact is, you will still age. There's, the question is, you know, uh, 
So I, how I, much better? I, I suppose, yeah, exactly. The question is how much better. But, and, and I'm all for all of that work. You know, a large part of why Bruce and I became friends a long time ago was because I absolutely endorsed the idea that we need to do the best we can for the population to get them to an average level of nutrition. But I think the critical thing to understand is average. If you ask about the difference in terms of health expectancy and life expectancy between, let's say, the middle 10% of the population and the bottom 10%, it's a large difference. And that's the difference that we're talking about here, the difference that Bruce is trying to do something about by making sure that um, if the poor won't eat fruit, then at least they have a multivitamin and so on. But if you look at the opposite end of the spectrum, if you look at the difference between the middle 10% and the top 10% in terms of health expectancy and life expectancy, it's basically nil. Of course, I'm factoring out genetics here. I'm talking about lifestyle. I'm talking about things that we can modify. Um, <clears throat> and that's really important to remember because it's so easy from the popular press and so on to get the impression that if you just do what your mother told you to and do it really well, you know, you eat a really good diet and you get a lot of exercise and you never drink anything and you never smoke and so on, then you're actually going to live 20 years longer than you otherwise would. When in fact, the message of all of the data we have, epidemiological or anything, is that it's probably closer to two years, if that. Uh, you know, I mean, the example I like to give is just a very simple one, looking at national life expectancies. So people laugh at the USA a great deal because of the fact that it sits at number something like 45 in the league table of longevity among the um, uh, industrialized world, despite the fact that you guys spend far more per head on medical care than, um, than anybody else. Uh, but if you look at the absolute numbers and you look at the actual difference in number of years in life expectancy between the USA and the number one big country, namely Japan, it's only four years. Only four years. Yeah, no, I, I'm familiar with this data. It's five years, actually. Uh, the average lifespan expectancy in the US, United States is 79. In Japan, it's um, 84. Mm. And what's really interesting, so first of all, um, I'm not sure that Japan has the optimal diet. You know, in general, they, you know, get, they're getting all the micronutrients. I mean, if... You know, there's a lot of factors here, but um, what I do find interesting is if you look at the data, so right now the average difference is five years, and in between males it's four years, between females it's six years. If you look at the data from 2012-2013, Japan has gone down in their life expectancy. So their average life expectancy has gone down by a year. A year, uh, U.S. has gone down by a year. So there was a bigger difference. It was six years. But what's really interesting is that the male life expectancy in Japan has gone down by four years, almost four years, three points. Okay, so, so these are the kinds of fluctuation in data that I find very untrustworthy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, you know, it, it's possible that, you know, Japan's becoming more westernized. Males also smoke like chimneys over there. So, I mean, there's a lot of other factors that, you know, come into play. Could be that could be quality of data, you know. Could be quality of data, exactly. Um, I think that if... Like you mentioned earlier, you know, if, if you really want to look at the effect of diet on lifestyle, then, you know, looking at obesity, you know, obesity is associated with a seven-year reduction in lifespan. Yeah, so Morbid obesity, obesity is associated with 14-year reduction. Oh, don't get me wrong, of course, but that's the low-end versus middle that I was talking about. But it's growing problem in the United States. You know, obesity is... Well aware of that. Jail Shansky, <laughs> of course, has been very prominent in um, publicizing this problem and predicting that unless we do something very serious about the obesity epidemic, then we are in danger of seeing a, reduction, a, a, a fall in the life expectancy in the USA. But of course, we haven't seen that yet. 
because the problem is too new. It's what? The problem is too new. Too new. Yeah. So I, I do think that, you know, I, I talk a lot about what role micronutrients have in, in diet and in metabolism. I mean, B vitamins are running sure. your mitochondria, magnesium is needed for DNA repair enzymes, vitamin K is needed to sure, sure. blood quality, on and on. So, you know, it's also it plays a very important role. Um, and I do think it absolutely affects the way you age, especially if you're talking about living in an unhealthy, eating refined carbohydrate sort of diet versus eating your greens totally, and, totally. and exercise and things like that. But even with that said and doing all those things, you're still going to age mm -hmm. because you can't stop the breathing in oxygen and eating food, this process yep. that you know is coupled together to make energy, well, it's inherently makes damage. Right. Yeah. And there's no stopping it. Yep. No no matter I mean no matter what amount of nutrients. Which of course you is get. exactly where I came in back right. in two thousand with the realization that even though we couldn't stop this damage from being created, we could go in and comprehensively not necessarily 100%, but very, very comprehensively repair that damage and thereby keep its overall level of abundance to a level that the body is set up to tolerate with full function. So with these discoveries, CRISPR technology, you know, mm. pluripotent stem cells... Mm. These are huge things. Are, are, is this advancing your research? Absolutely, absolutely. It's advancing our research just as it's advancing everybody else's. These are techniques, technological innovations that just like the fact that we can now have the sequence of the human genome, they just make things easier and faster. CRISPR I would single out as a particularly important advance because there are definitely quite a few things we're going to have to do in getting this damage repair to be comprehensive that involve genetic modifications. And some of those genetic modifications are going to be possible to do ex vivo in stem cells that we then re-inject into the same person. Um, some of them are not. Some of them are just going to have to be done by bona fide somatic gene therapy. And as we know, somatic gene therapy has had a rocky ride over the past 20 odd, odd years because it's really difficult to make it safe. And the fundamental reason it's so difficult to make it safe is because the viruses, the vectors that are used to get engineered DNA into places are not easy to control in terms of where they insert themselves into the DNA, and thereby they are not easy to control in terms of what damage they may do, making a cell cancerous, etc. CRISPR, on the other hand, started out being pretty good at, at its site specificity, and better than that, as time's gone on, very rapid advances have been made such that now it's just out of sight site specific. It's incredibly um, high fidelity. That means that one can increase the titer, the amount of engineered DNA that you stick into the body that's supposed to go and modify cells, and by increasing the titer you can increase the penetrance, the proportion of cells that are actually modified in the way you want, without increasing the off-target effects, because the off-target effects have been eliminated by the nature of CRISPR. Yeah, I think that using CRISPR, it, I think there's, there's obviously a lot of um, things that need to be overcome, like getting it to the right tissues. I mean, you still, you know, have to have some sort of targeting sequence to say, okay, mm -hmm. we want CRISPR. It's easier to do ex vivo when you take your, all, your blood cells. Ex vivo <laughs> is always going to be easier. Right. But saying, you know, we want to get this to the liver or we want to get this to the or heart. Or muscle. Yeah, that's or right. Or muscle. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, much more, more difficult. And, you know, that those, some of these um, technologies that you were describing about, you know, engineering cells to have certain viruses mm. that, you know, make them 
go somewhere or change a gene. Also, we, we don't know what their effects are in terms of putting them in our body. Are they going to, mm -hmm. you know, cause cancer? Um, I see sort of the same challenges with the induced pluripotent stem cells. Mm -hmm. So being able to make a tissue, uh, uh, for example, take a, a skin cell from your, your body and give it the right genetic combination to trick it and reprogram it into becoming a stem cell, um, a, a pluripotent stem cell so that it can form any cell in the body. Um, that also is, you know, takes some viruses at this point, I think. So, well, first of all, no, there are plenty of, na plenty of ways now that have been perfected that um, induce pluripotency without actually using viruses at all. Um, uh, the most recent one that got a lot of attention only a month or two ago was when Helen Blau's group at Stanford showed that they could do it with messenger RNA. Um, but it's also been done just by, you know, um, uh, electroporating proteins in. Of course, the problem here is that the actual um, efficiency is rather low in many cases, mm. um, but that's improving. Uh, the other thing is the quality of the reprogramming. So the original um, um, uh, Yamanaka factors, mm -hmm. uh, they work pretty well. But Jean-Marc Lemestre in, in, in France a few years ago showed that if you use six factors, then you can get a much more a high fidelity reprogramming. You can even reprogram senescent cells, which you, which you couldn't do with reg the regular Yamanaka factors, and so on. Oh, you know, wow. These things are, you know, it's an enormous field and it's progressing really fast simply because it can. And I'm uh, overjoyed. You know, it's going to make a lot of things easier. That's, that's really exciting. Are you familiar with the uh, fact that placenta is a good source of pluripotent stem cells. It doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah, and that it's just being trashed, mm -hmm. you know, every day. But the point is, of course, you know, we want to treat people who are already in middle age, right? So they don't have their placentas any more than they have their umbilical cord or whatever. And if we can do the reprogramming well, then that's fine. Well, if you if you have enough placenta being banked, sort of like blood, then you can potentially find a, do a match. I mean, oh, well, of course, now we're talking about um, falling short of true autologous administration. As far as I'm concerned, you know, yes, it's good to have matches that cut out some of the immune res the rejection response because of MHC compatibility, but the fact is the real McCoy is taking cells from the prospective recipient, reprogramming them, doing whatever you want and putting them back into the same person. And the only reason that that at the moment is not what everyone's looking at is because it costs a lot of money to do that on a personalized basis. But as time goes on and we get better and better at these things, that cost is going to reduce and all this banking stuff is going to be obsolete. Do you know if the reprogramming of a, of a skin cell into, say, a, you know, a pluripotent stem cell, do you know if it's been shown that, you know, everything gets reprogrammed, the epigenetics? I mean, because you're essentially talking about, mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you take it from an adult who's 50 years old mm -hmm. to 50 year old skin cell, I mean, so this is what I was saying, uh, well this relates to what I was saying a moment ago about using the original Yamanaka technique versus refinements of it. So for sure it's been shown by a number of groups that the standard methods of um, creating induced pluripotent stem cells do not 100% erase the epigenetic state that the cell came from. There is a retention of some epigenetic memory as people are calling it. That epigenetic memory is considerably less in this system where you use six factors that I mentioned, and of course other people are looking at other ways to eliminate it even further. Then again, of course, you've got to ask how much elimination is needed for a particular purpose. Isn't it, is not it in fact fine for cells that started out being skin but you're going to use them for blood to actually have a little bit of skin behavior in them? You know, does it actually matter? You know, th these are the questions that people are asking all the time all over the world right now. Yeah, well, I'm less worried about that and more worried about the fact that 
you may now have certain genes that should be high, more highly expressed at a younger age mm-hmm. to make it younger. Not so. For example, you know the the cell cycle regulator ARFP16 E4A. During early youth, early development, as we're younger, it's silenced, epigenically silenced. And that's the reason for that is because if it's not silenced, it's stem cells stop dividing. Mm-hmm. It essentially says stop. Um, and so, you know, you want the stem okay. cell to divide. So there's two, there's two answers to that. The first answer is that, you know, this is reprogramming, right? So if you're, take, if you're erasing the whole of the epigenetic state of a cell and taking it back to how it was in the embryo, then you're going to redifferentiate it in the direction you want to the extent that you want, and that's going to make it into, let's say, an oligopotent skin stem cell um, with its P16 suppressed, the way a regular oligopotent stem cell would be. And the way that you make sure that's true is just by knowing what to do in the redifferentiation process. So my friend and colleague Mike West at uh, at Biotime has been working on this for a while, and that's the main thing that Biotime is really good at, this method that um, controls and systematizes the redifferentiation process. The other thing to mention, though, is that yes, if you take a bunch of skin cells from an older person, then there's going to be a spectrum of level of expression of, let's say, P16. Uh, now, it may be that the process of dedifferentiation, getting it back to the IPS state in the first place, is actually going to be affected by that, such that the cells that actually give rise to your IPS cells will be preferentially the ones that happen to have low P16 in the sample that you took from the original person. So, you know, so what, really? Yeah, um, so you had brought up this idea a little earlier of kind of, at least I think it's a somewhat of an antagonistic pleiotropy. When you're talking about, for example, the immune system, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of, you want an active immune system because you want to survive, mm-hmm. you know, through reproduction. You want to not die from, you know, some bad, nasty infection. But also, this inflammatory process, as you get older, can, you know, accelerate aging. Um, yeah, so you've got to be very careful with antagonistic pleiotropy. It's a kind of overused term. I'm not even sure that one should call the inflammatory response an example of antagonistic pleiotropy. Because remember, the situation in an older individual includes the fact that the rest of the immune system has declined. So you kind of need a high inflammatory response just to fight off infections. And maybe it's a good trade-off even in the elderly. Yeah. Irrespective of the fact that it was a, a different trade-off earlier in life. Yeah, I think that's less of an example. Uh, more of a, a better example would be something like uh, growth hormone or IGF one, mm-hmm. which is you know very important for development for growth. It's you know it causes muscles to repair damage. It actually you know grows new neurons. I mean it's it's a great growth factor. But as you get older and you have more cells that have accumulated damage, that have more mm-hmm. damaged DNA. Um, you know, having too much IGF-1 around allows these cells, instead of to die, you know, grow. So basically, well, so actually, I would say that that's a, an example rather similar to the inflammatory one in the sense that rather than being strictly speaking antagonistic pleiotropy, good in the young, bad in the old, this is a case where it's good in the old and bad in the old in different ways. So you want more growth hormone in order to have better muscle. You want less growth hormone in order to have less cancer. Right, and IGF-1 also. Uh, suppresses a transcription factor, FOXO. Yeah, the details of how it works right. are really relevant. No, know. but it's yeah. it's so it's kind of a trade-off, I guess. Yeah, so okay. maybe less yeah. of you know this antagonistic pleiotropy. I most think of it's, a, most of aging ultimately comes down to a trade-off between cancer on the one hand and everything else on the other hand. Right. Yeah. So okay. Well, this is all extremely interesting. So, is there anything else that we haven't covered? I think we covered quite a lot. Okay. Awesome. Um. So if people want to find out more about 
-hmm. the SENS Research Foundation, more about the research you're doing, where can they find you, where's well, the best way? Th th there's two things. First of all, obviously we have a website, sense.org, S for sugar, E for elephant, N for November, F for sugar, no E at the end, just SENSE, S-E-N-S. Um, second thing is we have a conference coming up uh, on August the 19th through 21st in Burlingame, just near SFO Airport, and um, registration is still open. We would be delighted to see people there. It's going to be an awesome event like it was last year. We will have a lot of academic participation, of course, and also a lot of industry participation. That's very important to emphasize because really our mission is to create a rejuvenation biotechnology industry. And we'll also have you know, people from policy areas and regulatory areas and, of course, many, many people from the general public. So, yeah, it's going to be an awesome event covering all the bases in this whole space.